Lord, it's been great to to look back and rejoice and celebrate and uh, be very thankful for your goodness to us over this last year. It's good to sing of your goodness and greatness to one another. Lord, now as we pause and spend some time looking uh, into your word, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us, that you would somehow make that leap between your word, my words, and the words we hear, and that they would all come out to be actually your word to us, and that you would speak to us individually now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's been to Norfolk Island? quite a few of you. Louise and I went there in November, just uh, last month, for our 30th wedding anniversary. We had a great time, really enjoyed it. On our uh, return, we kind of just casually mentioned to our kids about how we'd stayed on the hill right above the homes where the the mutineers from Pitcairn Island were originally resettled, etc. And they, they looked at us kind of blankly. And I said, the mutiny on the bounty? The mutineers from the bounty? To which they replied, no, no. I said, you don't know the story of the mutiny on the bounty? How can you not know the story of the mutiny of the bounty? I've been reading about it for years. I've been talking to you about it for years, haven't I? How can my children not know the story? I mean, for Christmas, just coincidentally, my mother-in-law gave me Peter Fitzsimons' book, The Mutiny on the Bounty, which has just been released. And it's interesting that he actually says that it's the greatest story. He, he thought that the, um, the one in Western Australia, what was that? The, the Batavia. He thought that was the greatest story. I read that one as well. He said, now this is the greatest story of humanity. And I did think to myself, I think there's probably a greater story ever told. In fact, I think they made a movie about it, didn't they? Do you remember that in the 70s? Watching that story on Good Friday. It's kind of about Jesus and crucifixion and and all that. It was on Channel 7, I think. Stories matter. Don't they? Stories matter. They really matter. They are the containers which hold the truths about what it means to be human, what it means to be a Shanks or a Reinsbergen or a Pedersen. You know, I was sitting, you know, Johnny Pedersen. John Pedersen used to teach me Sunday school when I was a little boy, really little boy. He was this big guy. I remember he had really big hands and he used to tell me stories and he encouraged me. He encouraged me to draw and to to make things with my hands. And one day he actually challenged me to make a a model of the Holy Land out of paper mache. And I did. And he told me stories about how Jesus made things with his hands and walked on water and caught lots of fish. I mean, stories matter. They really do. Stories matter. They are the containers in which the truths about what it means to be Christian are held. You know, if you want to understand the Bible and you want to know God, you really have to know the stories in the Bible, don't you? You really do. I mean, you just have to know them. You have to know the story of Adam and Eve. You have to know the story of Cain and Abel. You've got to know the story of Noah and the ark, the story of Joseph and his coat of many colours, the story of Ruth 
and Naomi, of Esther and Mordecai, the story of David and Goliath, the story of Saul and Jonathan, the calling of the prophet Samuel, the failing of Eli and his sons, the story of David and Bathsheba. I could go on and on, couldn't I? Do you see what I mean about story? You only have to mention a name like Bathsheba and a whole flood of images and thoughts and truths come washing over you. If you know the story, that is. Of course, the tragedy for so many today is that they simply have never heard the stories of God's action in the world. This is why it's so important that we do things like employ youth pastors and run Sunday school programs and teach school scripture because people, all people, young and old, need to know the stories. You know, the chances are because of the, the way the generations have gone, that a lot of the men that meet in your men's shed maybe didn't go to Sunday school. And maybe they don't know the stories. You've just got to tell them the stories. You've got to tell people the stories. So many people just do not know what God has done. But the thing is, it's all part of one big story. I mean, everything, absolutely everything, every single thing which happens to every single person who has ever lived on planet Earth is part of one great big story of what God is doing in his world. I reckon that's why it's called history, because it really is his story. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm not part of this story. I'm not part of any story. I'm just minding my own business and living my own life. And, well, I just, I didn't give anyone permission to include me in any story. Just leave me out of it. I don't want to be part of this big story. Well, let me assure you, when it comes to history, you've got no choice. God is writing history for his own sake for his own glory and honour, and you and I are part of it, whether you like it or not. You are part of what God is writing about his actions. In this place, at this time, you are part of it, whether you like it or not. Well, today I want us to open the Word of God to Numbers chapter 13. Now, it's going to be up here, but not all of it. So if you've got your Bible, it'll be really good to have it open. I want us to open the Word of God to Numbers 13. And I want us to hear the story of what happened when God brought his people to the border of the land he'd promised to give them. This is one of those stories you simply have to know. This is one of those stories which contain so much revelation about who God is and what he's like and what he's done. This is one of those stories which should profoundly shape the way you live your life. See, God promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he would make their descendants into a mighty nation. He would bless them and they would in turn be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. They would be his people and he would be their God. The only problem was that they were slaves in Egypt. For 450 years, they waited for a deliverer, crying out to their God. And finally, God sent them Moses. Hopefully, you know the story. If you don't, you'll find it right at the beginning of your Bible. Just flick through there till you see Moses. Start reading. It's a great story. 
Anyway, God brought them out of Egypt by his might and power. They crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptian army who was coming to bring them back were slaughtered. And for two years, they wandered from place to place following the leading of their God, Yahweh. And it was during this time that they received, through Moses, the Ten Commandments and the Law. The worship practices of the people were initiated and their national identity was starting to form as God's chosen people. They're ready to enter the promised land. Nearly five centuries has par- have passed at this stage, okay, from when God made the promise to Abraham. I mean, who knows how many generations, who know, knows how many lives lived since God made his promise to Abraham. And now the time had come to enter into all that God had promised them. So let's turn to Numbers chapter 13 and read the story. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each of the ancestral tribes, send one of its leaders. Take note of that mission. Okay. Their mission was to explore the land of Canaan, which God was going to give them. These men were chosen to go and have a look at what God was going to give them. I want you to notice they were not asked by God to go and see if it was going to be possible for them to militarily take the land. God was going to give them this land, period. Verse 3, So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the side of, t- tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sepha, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Navi, son of Vofsi. From the tribe of Gad, Gabriel, son of Maki. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. I want you to take careful note of what we just did. We've just read the names of men who lived 35 centuries ago. Just let that sink in. 3,500 years ago. And I want you to remember that when the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt, Pharaoh is not even named. He's just called Pharaoh. Much to the frustration of archaeologists ever since. Mind you, the two Hebrew midwives were carefully named. But Pharaoh's not named. Yet these men, they are carefully named. They are named, their fathers are named, their tribe is named. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, so this is Moses, okay, at this stage, he said, get up, go up through the Negev, And on into the hill country, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? 
do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. I mean, what's going on? Moses speaks as though they need to establish whether or not they could take the land. Moses speaks as though they needed to establish whether the land was indeed a good land. As though God would not have the very best for them. That is not what God told them to do. God said, go and explore the land I'm going to give you. So you would see Moses, yes, even Moses got it wrong. He, he got kind of off mission. This was not what God had commanded them to do. So they went up and explored the land. They discovered that indeed it was a good land. They found grapes so large that it took two men to carry a cluster. Just think about that. That's a big bunch of grapes. It is. They found pomegranates and figs and after 40 days they returned to Moses and the people. And standing before them all, they declared, verse 27, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. In other words, it is all that God said it would be. It is a great land. It is a wonderful land. But, and that's when it all started to fall apart. But, the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Then Caleb, you can imagine he's sitting there going, oh no. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we certainly can do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread a word among the Israelites, a bad report about the land they'd explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. They are giants living in the land and we are like grasshoppers before them. That's what the text says. And that night, this is number 14 verse 1, that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we died in, the, in Egypt or in the desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I just want you to remember, these are the very people these are the very people, the actual generation who were delivered from Egypt by God's might and power. These are the very people, the actual generation who walked through the Red Sea when it parted. This is not the great-grandchildren of them. These are the actual people who walked through the Red Sea. These are the very people whom God saved over and over again, the people he fed in the wilderness with manna and quail and now they're saying, if only we had died in Egypt or in the desert. They were utterly contemptuous of God and all he had done for them. They were disobedient and they doubted God's strength and might. And understandably, Moses and Aaron were shattered. And they fell down before the people distraught. 
Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked of stoning them. Notice once again, their involvement is carefully recorded. God's glory appeared to all of the Israelites as he met with Moses. And God said to Moses, you know, I think this is the most extraordinary little kind of insight into the character of God as he relates to his friend Moses, the humblest man on the earth, who the Bible tells us he spoke to face to face as one man speaks to another. Have a listen to how God speaks to his friend. He says, how long? How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And quite amazingly, Moses replies to his friend, No, no, Lord, that alone is extraordinary. Now, I won't won't read it all. He he does a great lawyer kind of job there. You read it all, he goes, goes hard at God and he convinces him. He pleaded with God to forgive the people for his own sake, for the sake of God's glory. He basically said, Lord, it's going to make you look bad if you wipe them out. And if you jump down to verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Take note of that. They were forgiven. They were forgiven. But there were still consequences for their rebellion. Serious consequences. Verse 21, Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me, And tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And then God said, Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Now, I haven't got any more slides. Your eyes are getting tired. Turn back now and head towards the desert. That's what God said. Turn back now and head towards the desert. But if you jump down to verse 28, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, 
son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for the children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lie in the desert. None of them would enter the promised land except the two men, Caleb and Joshua, who declared, with God's help, we can do this. The other spies, the other ten, who spread the bad report, who made the whole community grumble against God, were struck down and died there and then. You hear that? God simply killed them on the spot for what they'd done in leading the people away from God. We need to be very careful when we're dealing with God and his people. You know, I've done a few business meetings, church business meetings in my time. And I tell you what, there are times where people have given two seconds thought to an issue and they will stand up and say stupid things when the leadership has spent months praying about it. And I honestly huddle in fear that God might strike them dead. It's just a warning from someone who's been in church meetings for 50 years. Be very careful. You can't read a story like this and not take it seriously. When Moses reported this to all to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Oh, they mourned bitterly, but they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Verse 40 says, early the next morning... They went up towards the hill country. So they crossed out of the desert. They come across the Jordan River. They're looking up the hill. You know, Jerusalem would eventually be up the top. They're looking up at the hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up. Because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down, attacked them, and beat them down all the way to Horma. It's a sobering tale, is it not? A couple of things, a couple of things we need to take careful note of from the passage. Firstly, there seems to be a direct correlation between the degree of revelation one has received and the swiftness of God's judgment when we're disobedient. You see what I'm saying? If you haven't had any revelation... God's judgment is very slow. But if you've had a lot of revelation, watch out. See, the more God has shown you about himself, the more he has revealed his power and might to you, the more he expects of you. These people had seen God do great things on their behalf, yet they continued to grumble against God. They refused to believe he was leading them into this land that he'd promised them. And they refused to believe that he would give them victory. 
over the inhabitants. They refused to have faith in their God. And as a result, God's judgment upon them was swift and decisive. See, as revelation increases, so does God's judgment. And we see this principle in, in Moses' life. If you have a look just a handful of chapters later in chapter 20, the people are desperately thirsty. You know, they've gone back after being slaughtered. They've gone back out into the wilderness. They're starting to wander around. They're really, really thirsty. And once again, they start grumbling to Moses. And God says to Moses, tell them to gather around and speak to that rock and water will come out of it. And what does Moses do? He picks up his staff. He walks up to the rock and goes, abracadabra, shazam. And he strikes the rock. God said, speak to the rock. But Moses makes a big show of it and strikes the rock. And then he kind of takes credit for the miracle himself. And as a result, God's judgment was swift and severe. You know what God said to Moses? He said, Moses, you will not enter the promised land for what you've just done. After everything you've done, after all you've been through, God's judgment seems overly harsh. But God spoke to him as one man speaks to another. His level of revelation was so high and there's for so much expected of him. He's expected to have great faith in God because God had done much for him. Now, before you start thinking, well, phew, I haven't seen much of God's power and might. I haven't walked through the Red Sea. I've had very revel little re revelation. I'm no Moses. So God will be very patient with me when I'm rebellious and disobedient. Well, just remember this. These people had no scripture, they had no Old Testament, they had no New Testament. They did not have the stories that we have. They did not have these God-given containers of truth and meaning. They knew nothing of Jesus, the perfect revelation of God. But most importantly, they did not have the Holy Spirit as we who live after Pentecost do. They did not have the Spirit of God living within them, teaching them how to live from the inside out. We have all of these blessings, which they did not have. And in addition to that, there's no generation of Christians who have access to knowledge and understanding as we do. Any question you've got about the Bible, you can ask, Google, and you'll have the answer just like that. Do we really think that we will be treated any differently when we refuse to trust God, when we refuse to enter the future God has for us? Do we really think our rebellion is any less offensive to God than it was for these men and women? I mean, we are dealing with the same God. God, God rightly expects much from you and me. We have more revelation, more understanding, more resources than any generation before us. And Jesus said, for those who are given much, much is expected. We have been given much. Second thing I want you to take careful note of from this passage. The spies' names were meticulously recorded. Their fathers' names were recorded. Their tribes were recorded. They were not just faceless men, leaders of their tribes. That is not how God works. Jesus says to us, not a single sparrow falls to the ground that your father, my heavenly father, doesn't know about. God knows you in great detail. He knows the very hairs on your head. That's what Jesus tells us. They are Jesus' words. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows every cell in your body. 
And the Word of God tells us that your days are numbered to the precise moment of your death. God knows all about you. That's really nice to know when you're facing something really serious like cancer or divorce or unemployment. God knows all about your cancer and your marriage and your job. It's great that God knows all about you. You're not just another human being. To God, you have a name, an address, a mother and a father. Grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. He doesn't just know their names. He knew them. He knew all about them as well. He knew their story like he knows your story. To God, you have a medical history, an employment history, a relationship history. You have a detailed history, which God knows in intricate detail. He knows your story. And it's an important story, your story. But as I said at the start, there's a more important story, a more all-encompassing story than yours or mine. There is his story. The story of what God is doing and what God has done in his world. And it is all for his glory. Not yours or mine, his. His glory. Because he is the only one who deserves all the glory. Now what is truly extraordinary is that God invites us to be part of his story. Just like those Israelites on the edge of the promised land 35 centuries ago, it wasn't just about them. They were a tiny, tiny part of all that God was doing in building a people for himself, a people who would love and worship him forever. A people who ultimately would be made holy and righteous by the sacrifice of the Son of God on a Roman cross 15 centuries later. They were invited to be a part, a rather special part, but a small part of the story of God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. But because of their rebellion, their lack of faith, and their disobedience, their part in the story was changed from being soldiers in an advancing army, men and women taking hold of all that God had for them, to being wanderers in the wilderness, waiting for nothing more than death. Your life is being written into God's story, whether you like it or not. You know, there will, there will come a day There will come a day when it will be written down. Murray David Shanks was born on the 28th of May 1967 and he lived in these places and he, he did everything that God called him to do. He stepped into that. Or it will say, Murray David Shanks, born on this date, son of these people, grandson of these people, and he just refused to do what God had for him to do. Your life is being written into God's story, whether you like it or not. And I just see so many people stepping up and entering into God's plan for them. We've heard about that a minute ago, haven't we? People stepping up into what God is doing. And, and he's, he's using you and you're being involved in his story. This is your time. There is no other time for us. Life is short and God's opportunities will not keep coming around for you. I cannot go back and be the youth pastor I was when I was 30. I can't because I'm no longer 30. You know, in 2006, when I was pastoring a church at Lakes Baptist up there in Gorakin, I asked this older lady in the fellowship, Beryl Cullen, to join the eldership of the church. And at the time, we truly believed God was calling her to that role within the fellowship. And I thank God that Beryl said yes. 
to that call on her life at that time. God used Beryl to bless the church through spiritual leadership right up to her death in 2014. That opportunity came and went. You know, if, if Beryl had said no, she would have missed that opportunity to play a unique little part in God's story in that place and at that time. And if I had the chance to get to know all of you better, I could go around, I could tell stories about so many of you, I'm sure. I could tell about how you've done exactly the same thing, about how you're responding to God's call in your life. But you know, all of that doesn't really matter whether I know your story or not. All that matters is that God does know your story. He knows your story and he's delighted to use you and he wants you working with him. Your life is being written into God's story. You know, we have a a mission, just as the Israelites had a mission. We had to be a blessing to the nations. We had to go into all the world with the good news about Jesus, with the story of what God has done for us. And we had to be disciples. We had to make disciples. We had to teach people about walking with Jesus and to invite them into the family of God. That is our mission. And my question, we'll finish with this, my question for you really is just, will you step into what God has for you in 2019? Will you be part of what God is doing? Because, you know, there's no doubt in the world that God could have just wiped out everyone in the promised land and said, there you go. But that's not how God works, is it? God wants us involved. He wants to bring us into what he is doing. So that's my question to you. Will you step into all that God has for you as a church, but as individuals within that, as we go into a new year? Let me pray for you guys. Lord, I thank you for these dear people and for their obvious love for you. I thank you, Lord, for the way that they're their ministry to youth is on a real kind of cusp here as kids are moving from primary age up into high school and and all that that will mean. Lord, we pray a blessing on that ministry and the men shared and all the different things that are going on in the life of the church. Lord, I pray for each individual here that you would speak to us, you would encourage us, you would point us in the right direction, you would stop us walking through the wrong doors and open the doors that are leading us into the story, into the things that you have for us. Bless your people, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.